Hello, my name is Linda Zhuang and I'm a professor at the University of Potsdam. My kids are Taiwanese, American, German, Austrian, Californian, Berlinish. <laughs> so, so I want them to know who they are. Yeah, I want them to have a, a strong sense of self and, and to understand all of their different heritages and eventually, yes, be proud of who they are. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Researching Diversity. I'm Jana Fietze and I work in Educational Sciences at Erasmus University Rotterdam. And I'm Miriam Schwarzenthal and I work in Inclusive Education at the University of Potsdam. This episode was quite special. I don't know how it was for you, Jana, but it was our very first episode, so it just felt mm -hmm. quite exciting. And yeah. also we interviewed Linda, who actually uh, was our supervisor of our PhD, so... That also felt quite amazing, but also a bit uh, nerve-wracking, to be honest. Yeah, especially also because she's still your supervisor. At this yes. <laughs> but beside being a supervisor, I think she has really been a mentor for us um, because she's also such a role model, a successful woman in sciences. She has really inspired us in many ways. So she was definitely the perfect guest for our first episode. So what can you expect in this episode? This episode is about ethnic racial socialization which means how parents communicate about ethnicity and race to children. Yeah, so we talk uh, actually a lot about parents, but besides parents, you will also hear how socialization can happen among peers, but also how schools in Germany might be able to address issues of racism. And besides socialization, we also talk about representation, which is a hot topic, of course. Linda mentions it in her own personal story when she tells the story of how she was motivated by a lecturer of color to become the researcher that she is today. Yeah, and interestingly, the same topic, I think, came up later again when we talked about the future. And uh, we discussed a bit how uh, every lecturer and teacher actually can be a mentor or a role model also and promote representations. Yeah, and as always, you can find the references to the studies that we mentioned on our website. And we also posted bonus materials for you. And they can find out uh, why we talked about a zucchini that was the size of a cat. <laughs> All right, let's start with the episode. Welcome, Linda. We're so happy to have you as the very first guest of our podcast, especially because Jana and I, we both did our PhDs with you and you've been such a great mentor for us during these past few years. And I think we both have the feeling that we learned a lot from you, not only from your research, but also a lot from your personal perspective. So yeah, we are really excited to have you here. And uh, now, as in every episode from now on, we'll start talking a bit about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of parental ethnic racial socialization? Thank you. Um, I wanted to say first, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very honored to be your first guest. You guys were really nice to have as PhD students. So um, <laughs> I'm happy we're still um, doing things together. So, so how did I get interested in this topic of parent ethnic socialization? I think partly it's from my own experiences. I grew up in Minnesota in the U.S., and my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. And in Minnesota in the 1980s was not very diverse. Um, it, there weren't a lot of Asian people. So I realized from a very early age that I was different in a lot of ways from my classmates. I, I looked different. Um, I brought different food for lunch. Um, uh, I didn't know things that my classmates knew. Um, so being aware of this difference I realized much later when I was in my 20s um, that my parents 
parented me in ways that were um, that I later understood because of their immigrant background. So they didn't know some of the things that my classmates' parents knew. Um, so they tried to pass on their Taiwanese culture to us, and also they wanted us to pick up the American culture. They wanted us to speak English accent free, um, but other things they didn't want us to do, like date. <laughs> so um, I realized that, and if I experienced things in school, um, so if somebody maybe teased me because of my background, because I brought weird food, um, I, I didn't tell them. So some things they taught me um, about being Taiwanese, um, also being American, but I think I got interested from my, from my own personal experience. And uh, we know you also have two kids and you also kind of um, use what you learned and then try to raise your kids in a different way. Or how do you kind of uh, try to transmit these experiences also to your own kids? Yeah, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, once you have your own kids, then you kind of rethink, <laughs> I think, how your own parents uh, raised you. So um, there's some things that I wanted to do the same as my parents um, and other things I wanted to do different. And I think one of the biggest differences is I wanted to um, have my kids be ready. So be ready and be ready for what? I wanted them to be ready for if somebody, um, you know, they're mixed, they're mixed race. So my, my kids are Taiwanese, American, German, Austrian, Californian, Berlinish. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so I want them to know who they are. Yeah, I want them to have a, a strong sense of self and, and to understand all of their different heritages um, and eventually, yes, be proud of who they are. So if somebody um, says something to them or maybe is not the nicest because they may look different, um, I want them to be ready to, to know how to deal with that. And I think, too, you know, we live in Berlin and when they walk down the street, people are going to see them in a certain way. They, they look Asian mixed, yeah? So I want them to understand then what that means to grow up in a community or in a country um, or in a neighborhood where uh, maybe we don't look like a lot of other people. So I want them to know not just the cultural aspects of being American and Taiwanese and being German or Austrian, um, but also what it means to be Asian and to have people look at you um, as an Asian person. How is it for you to socialize uh, your kids about your family background but you also know that they have to combine so many different heritages and some you don't share yourself so how is that for you that maybe they also have these different combinations? Yeah I think um, in terms of research we know so much more about how parents socialize their kids from from one or two cultures and usually a parent is maybe you well, there's a most of the research is on monocultural parents socializing their children. Um, so there's a, a lot less that we don't know about mixed race parenting. Or so if you've got kids who are mixed and you are not mixed, um, what does that mean? So I think one of the things that has been found in this newer research of mixed race parenting is that um, it's important for parents to not um, give the message to their kids that maybe they need to choose one more than the other, or that um, one is better than the other. Um, but what seems to be helpful is to have kids be able to um, draw from and recognize and appreciate 
all the different backgrounds. So I'm not native German, I'm not native Austrian. Um, they see that with my husband, but they also see both of us supporting and appreciating each other. We're not the same, but we can support all these different, different dimensions. Yeah, and I think it's important for kids to see that in their parents. I think one thing that's really important is that as, as a, the parent who's a person of color or who's the ethnic minority, that they're also not the only ones talking about discrimination or being a person of color, um, but it's also the person who is the majority ethnic parent um, who has to be in these conversations, yeah, so that your kids can see that yeah, both of us um, are supportive and interested um, in supporting their heritage cultures, the mix of heritage cultures that they have. It is so wonderful how you can draw on personal experiences to explain your topic of ethnic racial socialization. And it kind of made me wonder also, how did you choose to make a career out of this particular topic? Yeah, so... It's interesting that you asked that because it, it made me reflect on my, my, <laughs> my education. Um, and the, the, I can trace this back to uh, really taking a seminar from a professor, Geraldine Brookins, at the University of Minnesota. And at the time, I was um, an undergraduate studying for my bachelor's in child development. And she taught a class called um, Black Child Development. And it was actually a graduate seminar But I was in an honors class, so I could attend the graduate seminars if I had the permission of the professor. So I went and talked with her, um, and she let me in. And I remember um, I was very intimidated because I was the only undergraduate. <laughs> um, everybody seemed so smart. But I remember the, the readings and the, and the conversations. Um, I don't think I, I actually don't think I ever said one word in that class. Um, but I soaked in a lot, and I think it was the first time that I saw how this professor, um, how her research really could be used to do something in the real world. So the knowledge that, um, that her and her group um, were gathering and studying could be used to help, and in her, her specific area, black child development, um, was good information to help them um, in terms of development. So I think, I think that's what was very attractive for me to see this. I, I, like, I liked um, studying, I liked being in the uni, um, but I think it was the first time that I saw how research specifically can be useful in the real world. And that's, that's she's really, I trace it back to her. And what's interesting, which I didn't realize until you asked me this and I thought about it, I think that she was, The only teacher or professor of color, she was, she's African-American. I think she's the only one that I've ever had in my entire education. So I was thinking back, you know, my elementary education, you know, my high school, my undergrad, my whole graduate school. She was the only person of color, only professor of color. And so it made me think, gosh, I wonder if that also maybe something stuck in my brain, like, oh, you know, I can, you know, I, I understand and I, I can see myself maybe doing something like that so but it's interesting I actually I never really thought about that until this question so and I think it's true like if you if you are a teacher if you're a professor you never know what ways you are affecting your students yeah like and you and you sometimes think it could be one little thing that you say or a class that you know you but you just never know so I think if you are a teacher or a professor um 
yeah, you never know, you know, who, who you support or what, 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 uh, who's looking up to you. Um, but she really did affect me. So this brings us to the next part, to the present. Which paper did you bring us today and what are we going to talk about? So the paper um, that I chose, so it's by Diane Hughes and colleagues from 2008, and it's called How to Catch a Moonbeam, a Mixed Method Approach to Understanding Ethnic Socialization Processes in Ethnically Diverse Families. And in what way is this um, yeah, an outstanding paper? Or why did you choose to uh, bring this to the podcast? Yeah, again? right. Well, so, um, yeah, it was, that's, it was kind of a, a challenge in some ways because there's, there's a lot of good papers out there. Um, and this one, I think it's, it's a little unconventional because it's not like an empirical, just a journal article. It's a chapter, so it's a lot longer. Um, but what I really like about this paper is that... Um, you know, it, for, 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 well, for many psychological constructs, something like socialization or ethnic socialization, um, it's complex. <laughs> There's many dimensions. Um, you could ask, you can approach that research question of, you know, how do you understand parental ethnic socialization? There's so many different things you can study. So, you know, you can ask, um, you know, what do parents do? You know, how, what messages do parents give their children about their cultural heritage or um, being mixed race in Germany or wherever, um, so the, the what or the content. And you can also focus on how parents do that, the process of socialization. Um, and you can talk about why or if you try to figure out why, what are the socializ socialization goals um, or when. You know, if you've got a five-year-old versus a 10-year-old, how do you talk with them um, similarly or differently? about these issues of culture, diversity, migration, race, whatever. Um, so I, so to try to understand such a many faceted construct, you need different approaches. And so what I liked about this paper is that it does use both qualitative and quantitative methodologies. Um, and I think that's very valuable because if you ask questions using surveys, um, you get one picture. Um, and you get different kinds of information compared to if you then did interviews with parents and adolescents. So one thing I really liked about this paper is that it combines both. Um, and I think it gives you a good picture then of how complex this construct is um, and that you get different information depending also on the methodology that you use. I think it's really interesting that in this paper, they also mention multi-informant studies. So to ask parents as well as their children about how they perceive their conversations, their interactions. And uh, yeah, that actually when you ask parents, they might give you one picture. But if you ask children, they might give you a very different picture. I think that another important finding or um, conclusion from, from that body of research is that often we think of socialization as a one-way street you know, parents communicate messages, yeah, or teachers communicate messages, or schools communicate messages. But how those messages are understood and incorporated into the adolescent's thinking or belief system or identity, that's a whole nother thing. So it's not just a one-way street um, that children are very, and adolescents are very active in how 
They see their parents and teachers in schools in their socialization efforts. So I think both are important, the intentions of what you know, teachers want to do in the classroom, the intentions of what parents want to do in the family. Um, but of course, we have to pay attention to and study, well, how do children respond to these messages, yeah, or adolescents, both in the family, but also in the classroom as well. So trying to understand socialization as a, as a more dynamic process, uh, not just one way, I think that is important. And I think that Diane Hughes's research also highlights that. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. Uh, she has such a nice way of also introducing different types of messages. So she really clearly says there's the cultural socialization, so emphasis on cultural knowledge or history or traditions, preparation for bias, so also discussing stereotypes or racial bias, uh, uh, egalitarianism, so in the sense the value of diversity in general, you know, or equal treatment, um, or also promotion of mistrust. And she also writes that different ethnic or cultural groups talk about very different things with their kids. Now, you have done a lot of research on Asian American families and how they communicate about culture, about race, about ethnicity. And I was wondering, what can you tell us about this specific group from your own research? What you'll find in the U.S. is that what we know about Asian heritage parents is mostly those who are immigrant parents. So I think a lot of the research has mostly focused on if parents immigrate to a new country, how do they parent their kids? And I've done this in my research as well. Um, and I think now I've moved beyond that because it's not the only dynamic between parents and children of different backgrounds. They often focus on the conflict. So if you grew up, if your parents grew up, my parents grew up in Taiwan, their ideas of dating were very different from American ideas of dating. So there was conflict there. So in my own work has focused a lot on that potential conflict. Um, what is what what I'm interested in now because Asians have been in the U.S. since the 1500s actually. So um, there, we're not all first immigrants, yeah. So there are second, third generation Asian heritage, and and what I find in my own research is that they tend to maybe parent differently from their parents. Um, precisely because they have grown up um, in the U.S. and maybe um, see the racial dynamics or the hierarchies or experience discrimination. Um, and they don't have to worry, for instance, about language. You know, they don't have to worry about that their kids were not going to grow up speaking English. Um, so maybe they can focus on other things. Yeah. So, so I do think it matters um, when we talk about parents, what generation of parents are we referring to immigrant parents or referring to second generation parents? Because I do think that sometimes they might end up um, socializing or, or parenting their children um, differently. So and I think in in Germany, that's a good question. What's happening here? You know, so and, and Miriam knows this and, you know, is others in our group like um, Tucci, we've been trying to find research about um, cultural, ethnic racial socialization of, um, you know, migrant heritage parents in Germany. And there's there's not yet much known that we have found so far. Yeah, so we found some about, you know, Turkish heritage and religious socialization, some cultural socialization. But how do parents um, communicate and talk about and, you know, prepare their kid for growing up in a world where they are going to be um, an ethnic minority, for instance, um, you know, how is their group 
seen by other groups or how do their groups relate to other groups. Um, so intercultural or intergroup um, dynamics. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know. Or <laughs> that's what we would like to find out in Germany. Like how, how do um, families of different heritages, how are they approaching these, these issues? And then what schools are doing too. Yeah. So if schools and classrooms are becoming much more diverse, um, how do teachers and school policies, how do they approach diversity, migration? Just what do you think might be parallels between school ethnic socialization and parent ethnic socialization? Like where do you see the different roles that these two contexts play for children's development? Yeah, so one that we see now with my Schachner's work, Christy Bird's work, that there are overlapping dimensions with family socialization and school socialization. So maybe and you think about your own schools, you know, if you went to a school with a different background, you know, there's different heritage kids. Um, what was the, the attitude or the climate of the school? Did it seem like it, it supported and appreciated and maybe saw the value of having kids of many different backgrounds? Yeah, so cultural pluralism, was that something that was appreciated? Or maybe less so, yeah? So and in your schools, if you've got kids from different heritage groups, were, did you get the impression that they were treated the same? And what did, did the school tell you, like, we need to treat each other the same? Yeah, so in the same way, families can give similar messages. Yeah, I mean, did your parents tell you that we should be open and we should seek out people who might be different from us and and be open and, and um, get to know people who don't just look like us? Yeah, and did your parents tell you that, you know, we need to treat each other all the same, Yeah, that we're all equal? So I think there are some parallels um, in some of these these broader dimensions of socialization within families and also within schools? Well, there's different contexts for socialization, right? So uh, a child always grows up between different social contexts. And I was wondering if maybe, uh, speaking of different types of messages, um, if, you know, conversations about ethnic pride or heritage might be Uh, easier or more effective within the family, whereas um, conversations about discrimination, you know, things that happen a lot outside of the family, uh, maybe the school is a very good context to address especially these issues. So do you see maybe that the contexts could complement each other in a way in their socialization? They, they could. I, I feel like too, like they could either complement or else they, they conflict, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. the messages that you get at home from your parents. Um, You know, maybe in, in your home, your parents tell you, you know, each group, we're, we're all, we are equal. Yeah, um, there's no group that's worse than us or, or better than us. Um, but in the schools, maybe that's, there's, maybe there's a different message. Yeah, and it could be flipped the other way around as well. Um, so, but I do think, um, you know, something like the topic of discrimination or racism, um, that's, you know, who wants to talk about racism? That's a difficult topic, I think, for schools to have. It's also a difficult topic for parents to have. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, but in, in our work, or as, as you know, in our, in our group and on our team, this, these issues, um, these big issues that are difficult maybe to talk about, um, I think it has its place both, um, of course, in, in families, but also in, in schools. But that's what we are trying to figure out in our research, too. Like, what is the what is a good way to, to talk about these things? You know, how do we bring up these issues um, with seventh graders? Um, 
And, and then what is the effect on them when we do that? <laughs> yeah, so if we bring in these, if we bring in a structure or, you know, lessons or um, pro, pro, uh, intervention programs to talk about these things, so what, what is the ultimate, you know, what happens? So that's what our research is trying to find out. But I think, yeah, socialization happens, of course, in many different domains. Um, and to try to figure out how, what each domain brings, what do parents bring, what do schools bring. And then more importantly, and what gets done less, is just how do those two interact or intersect, yeah? And peers, I mean, Yana, your work also, has, and yours, Miriam, has both worked on peer socialization. It's the importance of mm -hmm. friendships in understanding ourselves and our cultures, our heritages, um, you know, if we experience discrimination. Um, that's another domain that's very important. Um, so, yeah, I think trying to understand socialization from in these different domains is uh, necessary. And yeah, you also mentioned the topic of racism and uh, how adolescents discuss potentially racism with peers or parents. Um, I was wondering in the specific context of Germany, because also you've been living and working in Germany now for quite some years, um, what do you think, like, how does the specific, also maybe historical situation in Germany um, maybe affect how adolescents talk about these issues with friends or with parents? That's another big question. I think that's a very important question. I think sometimes, and, I, and again, it's I've lived here for, um, this is on my sixth year, I think, so, and visited schools and, you know, my, my understanding of, of what's happening in Germany. Um, It's, it's, I've learned a lot in these six years. And I think that, you know, on the one hand, racism is, you see this word on schools, you know, Schule ohne Rassismus, you see this word racism on schools. So in some ways it's very open, yeah, this discussion. Um, but of course, then in other ways, um, and we hear this from people who are studying these issues, you know, born and raised in Germany, um, that racism is sometimes limited to a certain piece of history in, in Germany, yeah? Um, so that everyday contemporary racism, this is very difficult um, to have conversations about. Um, and I know that, you know, in the, in the, the Me Too movement in the U.S. against gender um, harassment, um, in Germany there was a Me Too, but that was a M-E-T-W-O, um, there was a, a, a big Twitter conversation about who's German, yeah, that I can be German and Turkish, I can be German and whatever, Syrian or uh, Vietnamese. Um, and a lot of these Twitter um, um, uh, tweets were also about experiencing racism, yeah? So, and, and how difficult it is to have these conversations of who is German and, you know, who sees me as German or not. So I think, um, in, in Germany for young people, I do feel like young people talk about these issues maybe easier, have an easier time. I feel like as adults or researchers or teachers, when we go into the schools, um, yeah, they teachers, of course, they, they tell us, okay, these are, I'm glad you guys are talking about it because we don't, <laughs> we don't talk about it, but we think it's important, but maybe we don't really um, know how to talk about it. So, and I think, you know, talking with seventh graders about these issues, Sometimes, sometimes they're quite matter of fact, you know, so they experience discrimination and they just say, well, you know, it's an experience and it's not, um, you know, in the classrooms, it's not, it's not a horrible discussion, but I think, uh, you know, it's good to be open about these things and it's an important discussion. 
Talking about different socialization contexts, is there any project that you are currently working on with regard to this topic? Yes, well, Miriam knows. <laughs> so I'm talking with um, Miriam and Tucha, and um, we are just starting. Uh, we are going to start from the ground up and do focus groups with um, diverse uh, young German adults. So, and we're specifically looking for people, um, you know, who are Turkish heritage, Kurdish, mixed race, African, Asian heritage. So young adults maybe that have not been a central focus of research in psychology or education um, to, to get at this question of how they were raised in Germany and how their parents and schools and peers um, engaged in socialization on cultural, ethnic, racial issues. So, um, you know, where do they learn what it meant to be a part of Germany or not? Or, you know, who, who do they turn to if they maybe experienced um, discrimination? Um, are they very proud of their heritage? And why? If they are, why? And if not? Um, and yeah, what do their parents tell them? Yeah, about what it means to be Vietnamese heritage in Germany? What do their parents tell them about that? or not. <laughs> so so we're going to start um, first with uh, these focus groups and then build from there. So we already talked a bit now about some of your planned research projects, for example about the plan to study parental ethnic racial socialization in Germany. And this brings us to our next section, the future. So Linda, how do you see the future of the field as a whole and what questions should be asked in the future or what types of research are really needed in this specific field? More research outside the U.S. <laughs> so you know, there's a the, you know, if anybody's interested, there's one the most one of the most recent reviews in 2020 of this this literature is from um, Adriana Umania Taylor and Nancy Hill, um, and they reviewed I think it was 259 studies, um, and nine of these studies were not from the U.S. So I think that that's a really that's a really big gap in what we know um, that we need to know more rather than just what's going on in the U.S. on these issues. So I think that in the future we do need um, to think about these issues, you know, how, I mean, that's, that's another, a whole nother topic too, you know, ethnicity, race, culture, heritage, how is that um, discussed in Germany? Yeah, so race is still relevant here, but we don't talk about it in the same way, yeah? Um, so just to try to figure out more country-specific or community-specific ways that we get at these ethnic, racial, cultural issues. I think that's, we need to do that. And so I do think this ground up, you know, uh, work is important rather than we come in with our surveys with maybe our ideas from what we know from a lot of the U.S. literature. Um, we might miss something that's very perhaps German specific. I mean, the history of the different migrant groups, you know, being Vietnamese or the African heritage history, you know, colonialism, There, there's these histories that influence what's happening today, yeah, and how maybe parents talk or don't talk to their kids about these things. So I do think that we need to, um, yeah, try to be more situation, not just situation, but context specific in how we approach um, studying ethnic racial socialization. 
Yes. So we've now talked about the future of the field, but of course, it's also important to talk about the future of science or academia in general. I know this is quite a broad question, but in a lot of your research, you've taken a resilience or strength-based perspective. So to really focus on the strength and positive outcomes, such as well-being or Uh, academic achievement of youth in the US and in Germany now. And I was wondering, is there a way that we can apply this same yeah, view and focus on strength and on positive outcomes when it comes to increasing representation of underrepresented groups uh, in sciences? And by underrepresented groups, I mean specifically female social scientists, scientists from ethnic minorities, cultural minorities, racial minorities. And so on. So I'm just thinking about people who are doing research on migration, for instance, um, in Germany and Europe. Um, it, it's not a, a huge diversity of researchers and scholars that are doing work on migration in psychology and education. Yeah. So I think that it would. It, what's necessary is that we need to broaden that. We need to encourage more young people of various backgrounds to go into research and to. Um, be in academia so that there is more, well, there's more representation. So now there's so many parallels, I think, too, of, you know, like gender and STEM, you know, the underrepresentation of women in some fields of science. Um, and I'm using the U.S. as an example, but the deficit orientation or deficit view of black children, for instance, um, it, it wasn't until you you have black scholars um, that's, that view black families differently, yeah, and understand that, okay, it's not just, it's not just that all the fathers are gone or there's broken hearts, you know, it's not, that's, that's a very limited picture. Um, so, but if you have a, a wider range of scholars with wider, mm. different viewpoints and worldviews, I think you do end up asking different questions, such as, you know, not just what's wrong with ethnic minority children or black children, um, but what is going well, yeah? What are their strengths? And we know that there are healthy, competent, um, you know, young people of color. So, so I think that, yeah, just getting more researchers and, and young scholars, a more a greater diversity, um, that's very necessary to also change the science. <laughs> so we already talked a bit about the topic of representation now. And I can just say that also from my own personal experience as a young female researcher, I found it so valuable to have a strong female role model and also a mentor who was so supportive of young female scholars. Uh, so I was wondering, what do you think? Uh, what could or should uh, mentors or senior researchers do to also support the representation of young female scholars, but also of ethnic minority scholars? That is a great question. I mean, it takes time, I think, for, for changes or things to happen. I think we need to find ways to, to make it attractive for whether it's women or ethnic minorities to get into research. So they have to see um, that their contributions are valued, yeah? That maybe there's more than one way to look or be as a researcher. If we have a kind of narrow view of what a researcher is like, that might cut out, that might that might limit the the choices that people see. Like, okay, you know, a researcher should look like this and study this way, and you know, 
So I think being uh, as a as a mentor to to somehow support a broader range. So for me, I, I when I interview students for PhD, of course I'm looking for excellence. That's why you guys are. <laughs> I'm looking for excellence. Yeah, um, which also means and also diversity. Yeah, so you can convey that to the, the students or the young scholars that you are working with. I don't know, this, this sounds very simplistic in some ways, but I, I just feel like if you are the professor that you somehow have to, you have the, the responsibility to create a welcoming environment for people who may look different from who you are, have different backgrounds, yeah? So I'm not German or, you know, you guys grew up very differently than me. Um, but of course we share some similarities, but um, even for my very American, when I first met you, I, you know, I, I, I wanna convey somehow that I welcome young people who have the same motivation, um, to change things in the world through their research, for instance, yeah, and I want to support that. But I also think, I also think, I, I do want to say, what I think is really needed, and I don't know how to do this yet, but <laughs> this, this idea that excellence comes first, and then diversity, yeah, and I, and I think that that's not, I, I don't agree with that, like I do, you know, excellence is not something that's in conflict with um, diversity, and I think to address um, so many structural inequities, um, such as when you're young, you know, what school do you go to? What neighborhood do you come from? You know, that, that put you on a path, you know, do you get to go to gymnasium or not? Um, to address some of these um, barriers, um, we need to have programs that really support and are targeted towards, for instance, women in science or getting women into science, into STEM fields, um, or, um, ethnic minorities um, into studying migration, for instance. Um, so I do think on a professor level, you need to have a change, but also on a structural level, whether it's from funding agencies or programs that universities have um, to give more support for underrepresented minorities. I think structurally, how do we support underrepresented minorities? Um, that's needed. That's really needed. We've talked about so many things today, different issues with regard to the topic of ethnic racial socialization, but also representation of minorities in the field and in research in general. And I have one final question for you that we want to ask every guest on our podcast. How do you stay motivated to continue with your work uh, on all of these difficult issues? How do you do it? Yeah, so that's, I think that's a great question because I think um, one thing that's very motivating is just like talking to these young people, talking to seventh graders about these issues of diversity and migration. But yeah, to see seventh graders who are thinking about, okay, who are they and what are their, what is their place in society? You know, these seventh graders are thinking about these things, beginning to think about these things. Um, to me, that's very motivating because they have a lot of questions. They have a, sometimes uncertainties. Um, you know, so if I, if my parents were born here and I was born abroad, you know, am I German? You know, am I, you know, the, the, they have big questions. So I think to me, that's very motivating that um, our research can help um, try to understand um, how young people are thinking, but also then what can, again, teachers, schools, parents do um, to promote um, their development and their thinking. 
Um, and I think the other is exactly when I see when I see young scholars like you two um, <laughs> that are are you know tackling head on these issues of diversity and creating new podcasts and new information and knowledge. Um, I get really excited, really. <laughs> so I think um, what motivates me is really to surround myself with people like you two um, who care about these very, very important issues and care about them not just on the academic level, but also on a personal level too, um, and then actually do something about it. Thank you so much for doing our very first episode with us. No, well, thank you too. It's really nice to talk with you about these things. And yeah, I wish you luck in this podcast. Thanks, Linda, for joining us today and for helping us to increase visibility of outstanding social scientists as yourself, but also of cutting edge research. And uh, yeah, thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, U House for post-production and Lotte Koeman for the logo design. Make sure to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity.